Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 FM in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 7 p.m. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hey, New York City, you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live from the new WBAI Studios, a socialist radio show and podcast for members of New York City Democratic Socialist of America. The Democratic Socialist of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 95,000 members nationwide, and New York City DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. I'm Lisa Shi, and I use she, her pronouns, and I organize with the DSA Eco-Socialist. It's budget season here in New York. We caught up with freshman assembly member Sarah Hanestresta to talk about a major development in the fight for public power here in New York State and what her budget priorities are in her first year in office. And in city budget news, Eric Adams is using the influx of migrants to justify an austerity budget this year. His preliminary budget proposes deep cuts to public education, libraries, and other essential services, while it appears he is leaving the New York Police Department budget untouched. Desiree and Caitlin have been doing mutual aid work with migrants and are joining us live tonight to give us an update on what happened to the migrants who camped out outside the Watson Hotel and to comment on the mayor's austerity budget. We'll be opening up the phone lines around 745, and we want to hear from you, our listeners. So if you want to jot down this number so that you can call in later, it is 212-209-2877. And first, the headlines with Carolyn Van Zeitz. Hello, listeners. This is Carolyn Van Zeitz with your headlines for today, Tuesday, February 21st. In local news, the newly shrunk 20-person City Council Progressive Caucus is now actively threatening a battle over the role of the NYPD and Department of Correction in city budget negotiations this spring. In response to the lawsuit filed by state Senate Republicans, the full state Senate held a vote to reject Governor Kathy Hochul's nominee for Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals, Hector LaSalle, even though LaSalle was already rejected by the Judiciary Committee last month. The city reached a deal with DC 37, the city's largest union of municipal workers, granting 3% raises over the next five years. New York landlords want the U.S. Supreme Court to hear a challenge of the state's rent regulations. Community board applications are being accepted throughout the boroughs. Consider the entry-level position to government 
Community boards advise on issues from liquor licenses to land use cases. A new program developed through collaboration between several New York City colleges will help New Yorkers track flood risks. MTA has greenlit Governor Hochul's Interborough Express Line, which will connect the southern and eastern portions of Brooklyn with eastern Queens. This plan leaves out the Bronx, despite pushback from advocates. In election news, the new majority NYC, the group dedicated to electing women to the city council, informally known as 21 in 21, issued 27 endorsements for the 2023 council primaries, 23 of which were for incumbents. While the group did not endorse any women challenging male incumbents, it did endorse Inez Dickens, who is challenging socialist Kristen Richardson-Johnson, Council District 9 of Harlem. Former City Council member Andy King, Council District 12, Baychester, who was expelled from office in 2020 for ethics violations, has filed to run again in 2023, even though he is barred from office because of term limits. Michael Lang broke down the city's seven major electoral factions on his substack, which is linked on the Thorns newsletter, as well as a link to apply for community boards. For revolutions per minute, this is Carolyn Van Zeitz. Now, back to the studio for tonight's show. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by New York City DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethornnyc.substack.com. I'm Lee Zishi, and you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute. And yesterday, I caught up with Socialist Assembly Member for District 103 in the Hudson Valley, Sarah Hanna-Stresta, to talk about her first few weeks as a legislator in Albany and a major development in the campaign for public power in New York. For the first time ever, Governor Hochul has included elements of the Build Public Renewables Act in her budget proposal, which, if approved, would authorize the New York Power Authority, known as NIPA, to build and own renewable energy. However, there are significant differences between the governor's proposal and the Build Public Renewables Act. Here's what Sarah Hanna had to say about it all. Sarah Hanna, welcome back to RPM. We're so glad to, to have you back as a guest. Thank you. Very excited to be back here. The last time you were on, it was actually about a year ago. Um, I looked it up. It was February 3rd. Um, So you were a candidate for assembly. Now you are an official assembly member. You've been in Albany a few weeks, your first session. You know, how has it how has it been compared to what you were expecting going into all this? Wow. Yeah. So February is a long time ago. So that was before the primary. (laughs) Um, I, I have to say that I love being in Albany, I love the job. I love the opportunity to be able to just think about this full time, uh, really 24 hours a day. Um, and it's also everything is in person. So it's really great, great to see your colleagues. I am surprised by how um, siloed the Assembly and the Senate are from each other. I you know, rarely see um, folks from the Senate, although now I've been moved to a floor where there are some senators. Um, and... So one difference that I'm picking up on between the two chambers is that the assembly is a whole different world. We are still voting on chapter amendments. You know, we haven't quite started voting on uh, new bills. And also there are so many more people and the the vibe is very much, I describe it as rowdy, but also very friendly. Um, and, 
you know, there's, it, it feels, um, so I, I've been kind of, I think everybody told me to expect it, but kind of still taken aback by how far behind we are compared to the Senate. Um, and there have been some efforts at, you know, at speeding us up. So we'll see how that goes. It kind of like we, you know, the, the budget was introduced and we had public hearings, so we haven't really gotten a chance to uh, test it out um, as much. Um, and also I was really surprised by how there were so many things that I needed to be at happening at the same time. So like the budget hearings, which are full day, uh, were happening at the same time as the main conferences were happening for the assembly to discuss and respond to the budget. And I wanted to be in both, but I had to pick one and, you know, I was kind of bouncing back and forth, but eventually outside of the environment one, I had to pick the conference because I wanted to hear what my colleagues were saying and wanted to be able to express myself. So yeah, this, this, past week that just finished was absolutely the craziest one so far. Yeah, I never thought I would have like FOMO about people being in Albany. But when I saw like pictures from the big tax the rich Albany day, and then the next day with like the hearing and you're sitting in, you know, the chambers with like Senator um, Salazar and Gonzalez, I was like, Oh, I almost I almost wish I was in Albany. Yeah, it's it's really nice to be nice to have a crew and be together. Yeah, and so you mentioned the budget, um, which is what really dominates legislators' time um, in the beginning of the session. If people aren't aware, if our listeners don't know um, how it works, is first the governor proposes a budget, and then each house, the assembly, which you are in, the Senate, they each propose a budget. It's negotiated and then eventually voted on by April. And so this year, Governor Hochul. Um, included some elements of build public renewables, and we'll dig a little bit into the differences in a minute, um, but she included some elements of build public renewables in her budget. And I was wondering if you could just kind of first comment on the significance of that, um, because you know, this is something we fought for last year, it didn't happen. Um, how big of a deal is it that Governor Hochul actually included some of BPRA in her budget? I think it's a very big deal. And I was I was surprised um, by how much she did include, you know, when we so this was one of the bills that I was organizing on before I, I ran for office. Um, and I remember a time when nobody really thought that this bill had a chance or that it had the momentum. And now it's in the governor's exec executive budget. So it's a very big deal. Um, it's, you know, the main underlying fact that she must have understood uh, which we've known, you know, in the Public Power Coalition, known all along, is just how well positioned NIPA can be um, to build a lot of renewables for cheap for us um, and to for you know to help us get to our energy goals. So um, obviously, she gets that part. Uh, so I think it's a big deal, and I am very, you know, I she had some new electeds over uh, for breakfast. Um, at the governor's mansion, and I definitely told her that I'm very excited to get this to the best uh, possible form, and that I'm very glad to see it in her proposal. Definitely one of the benefits of having, you know, organizers as elected officials here at breakfasts with the with the governor. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, like I was somebody, uh, we had that huge rally outside of her office last year, you know, I was arrested with other public power comrades, and it didn't seem to make a difference. So I think it, it definitely is a reflection too of, you know, how much power has been built around this. Um, and is a, is a pretty exciting development. But, you know, as you kind of um, hinted at, you know, there are some differences between the Build Public Renewables Act, um, which, you know, the Public Power and Why Coalition have been organizing for, and what the governor put in her budget. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those differences are? 
You know, the overarching difference is that this bill, our version of the bill, is so thought through. Um, everything has really been considered, you know, from environmental justice to democratization to how um, uh, we hold NIPA accountable to how we do public hearings to how we do reviews of the state's progress on renewables. Everything has been thought through so um, with so much attention. And, you know, I was involved in some of this this uh, process, and I know how much thought went into that. And that's really the first difference you see in the governor's version is that um, the governor's version basically authorizes NIPA to build renewables, leaves it to the discretion of NIPA, but hasn't really um, positioned this initiative as a transformative uh, project to change the landscape of energy um, in our state and to you know to lead towards energy democracy. So it doesn't have all of the the aspect of a just transition that's really in the bill uh, to bring labor on the table. Right, we have given so much um, um, active engagement to labor in our version of the bill. So that's largely missing, and that's really the biggest. Part. Uh, and then the second part is just a mandate. You know, our bill authorizes and directs NIPA to do certain things in certain ways, um, whereas the governor's version just gives them a lot of discretion. And in my opinion, that's really setting up the project to fail, uh, leaving so much to the discretion of the trustees um, and not having a vision for NI what NIPA should be. Uh, because, yes, NIPA is very well positioned to lead. Um, the generation of our renewables, but how well positioned depends on what kind of NIPA we can have, uh, which our bill really sets us up for. So that's really the, the biggest difference. And, you know, in terms of the mandate, it's not just that we have a mandate in our version, but also what type of mandate. You know, again, it's very thought through. Um, one of my favorite parts of the bill is that it mandates NIPA to become by a certain point the sole provider of electricity to um, state-owned properties, which includes, you know, public schools and, and libraries. And to me, that's that's really uh, almost um, a, a very caring <laughs> consideration for our public institutions. And I would hate to lose things like that. And, you know, um, so, but, but I, I hope that, you know, the governor has expressed that she is very much open to uh, making this better. So I'm hoping that that's where we're headed. And, you know, I'm hoping that the assembly is really uh, willing to lead on this. The Senate already has, so. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that for a second. I do want to hear a little bit more about some of your other budget priorities, but since you brought up the Senate and the assembly, the Senate actually passed the bill last week. Um, how are you feeling about it getting through the assembly? <laughs> what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, like I said, in the assembly, we're still voting on chapter amendments. So I don't, you know, I don't see how we're going to get it through the um, floor before the budget. Um, whereas the Senate, it's only February and the Senate had already passed it um, as a bill. Um, so my guess is that for the assembly, it's really going to be a fight through the one house um, resolution rather than through a floor vote just, you know, based on the pace of where things are. Well, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for it. Um, and yeah, um, you know, so the assembly is now so focused on the budget. Uh, we love talking about build public renewables, but it is not the only thing uh, that you're you're working on as, as an assembly member. What are some of your other priorities in the budget this year, uh, in addition to BPRA? Well, first thing, 
first, legislatively, we really need tenant protections. We really need to start thinking about social housing. Um, so I'm prioritizing good cause eviction. You know, people need the right to renew their lease if they haven't um, done anything wrong and they can't be um, kicked out just because of, you know, landlords wanting to raise the rent um, and make more profits. Um, and I also really like Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act because it, that would let tenants collectively purchase a building and turn existing housing stock into social housing. And, you know, we're asking for around $250 million to have a fund to really help that effort statewide. Um, and we really, really need housing access vouchers in our district. We have such a hard time placing people um, into emergency housing. So we just need that to be a better effort. People are getting housed into, you know, unsafe conditions uh, with mold and, and whatnot. Um, so that's on the housing front. And I would, you know, love to have a social housing authority and start setting the tone for that. Um, also, the other thing is just living wages, right? Our minimum wage is um, too low compared to what people need to have, you know, just a, just a reasonable quality of life. Um, in the governor's proposal, she wants to index the minimum wage, but also one detail in her proposal is that um, outside of the New York metro area, we're going to actually have to wait until our minimum wage reaches $15 an hour. And then I think we have to wait a year more to be indexed, which really, you know, we have inflation now. So I think the indexing should happen statewide. Um, but also we want to raise the minimum wage before it starts getting um, indexed. Um, and we also want to have coverage for all. We want to have an employment bridge program for people who are not currently covered. Uh, we want um, home care workers to have their minimum wage be 150% of the uh, of the minimum wage. So just, you know, the more workers' um, protection overall. Um, and I think uh, I would say... There's also, I'm scared of throwing money at things without really specifying how that money should be bucketed and how it should be spent. I think, you know, one thing that I've gathered from colleagues who've been in the assembly for a while is maybe this suspicion over uh, really how money is being spent. Uh, that money that sometimes we have to fight hard to have for spending, but not necessarily, um, you know, delivering the results. So I'm kind of paying attention to that as well. Um, yeah, I think those are the, the really the top priorities. It's yeah, that's a big chunk of things to be working on. Um, it's it's a lot. And so earlier you were you were talking kind of about, you know, the potential of NIPA um, and making sure that, you know, what we pass here in New York, um, you know, what we always talk about in public power coalition is like, you know, it's, it's a model for the rest of the country. And so very recently, um, you know, NIPA is essentially a lot of the influence and, and it's run by a board of trustees. Um, and also, you know, one of the differences between build public renewables and what the governor is proposing is, you know, a democratization of, of NIPA and adding more trustees. And so one of their trustees, he's um, a Republican, I believe, county commissioner. Uh, he even thought about running for Congress. He recently resigned. And in addition to complaining about bail reform, he claimed that, you know, implementing our state laws is, you know, not possible. And he's worried about the financial burden um, you know, because like our, our bills are so cheap now under fossil fuels. Uh, could you, you know, what's your response to this? Um, and, you know, how does it kind of reflect on the fight uh, for build public renewables? Well, I think he made the right decision because if he thinks all of that things, he should not be in NIPA. Um, you know, 
the main benefit of having a public entity is that the first concern, the first priority is serving people, right? Otherwise, we might as well do it through the private market, through, do it through private corporations, you know? Um, so anybody who is serving, especially in leadership roles in a public entity, needs to be completely committed to the state's goals, um, needs to be completely committed to being willing to take uh, risks, uh, knowing that there's going to be a payoff, knowing that as a public entity, you will have that opportunity uh, for the returns and for the payoffs, which private corporations don't have. Private corporations need to report uh, profits every quarter and, and public entities don't need to. So I think that, you know, that, that the benefit of um, having something be public is only realized if the correct people are leading uh, those efforts. And I think it's absolutely um, relevant to talk about who's going to be leading NIPA and who's going to be leading all of our state agencies. You know, we, we put, um, like, like our success depends on them being able to really understand the vision of, of public ownership of, of public goods, um, and to be able to understand what is required of their role to be a leader in that. So I think if people don't agree with the vision, I think they should resign. Yeah, we don't need these Cuomo holdovers. You know, I mean, when I actually read his resignation letter, and I know this interview was coming up, it just, like, I thought about our conversation a year ago about your vision for what public power could be, and it was like the exact opposite. And it's it's so obvious that there's some people who are just very much want the status quo, which is clearly not working. You know, when he's like, oh, it's going to be unaffordable. Like, it's not affordable now. <laughs> like, what are you, like, we're paying for fossil fuels right now and it's completely unaffordable. Um, yeah, so I agree that we need public servants who want to serve the public. Yeah, and, and it's, it it's, the public, hard, but. it's the public servant's job to figure out how to make it affordable, you know, and that is part of this equation, right? Like, Fossil fuel is not only unaffordable, it's completely unreliable and it's going to be increasingly volatile and unaffordable. So, you know, when I meet people who are sort of hesitant about um, uh, renewables, you know, I tell them that they're going to be like, nobody's thinking of how to make it cheap for them. They're going to be left out if we increasingly rely on, on fossil fuel. And the point of doing public renewables specifically is, again, not just to go green, but also to, to make it a working class issue, to make it an issue of justice. And, you know, and NIPA is the way that we think that this is most doable. And that's why we're putting so much energy into this. And they, this is the bare minimum that they have to understand in this role. Well, we've, you know, the public power campaign has gotten us to a very exciting point and we'll definitely be following along um, here on Revolutions Per Minute to see what happens. Um, I wanted to see if there's anything else you wanted to, to talk to our listeners about today. And also, you know, if they're hearing this and they want to kind of follow the work that you're doing and maybe want to get more involved, where can they where can they do that? Yes. So one of the exciting things that I've jumped right into is taxing the rich. Um, so I'm carrying the corporate tax bill with Assemblymember Anna Kellis um, in the Assembly. She's the lead sponsor and uh, with Senator um, Holman Siegel in the Senate. Um, what, you know, we have such a short timeline to get this done. So we could use any help we can get from constituents calling their representatives to let them know 
what the bills are um, in this package of taxing the rich, investing in our New York. Um, and I will just say the corporate tax bill number, uh, it's 1980 in the Senate and 3690 in the Assembly. So look it up, call your representatives, and there's a total of five uh, bills that you know could raise billions of dollars for our state so that we don't have to keep coming back to a budget that's really um, um, talking about scarcity and austerity. We want to have a budget of abundance because we know that we can do that. Um, and so, you know, we want to have universal health care. We want to have uh, social housing. We want to have a great public transit. We want to have good investments in climate. This budget is eliminating right now in its version lots of critical things. You know, it's eliminating, for example, um, a, a program that provides legal services to homeowners that are uh, facing um, foreclosure. And these are just very <laughs> basic things that we, we don't have to compromise on. Um, so I, yeah, that's, that's what I would suggest people to get involved in. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with us today. And yeah, we'll be excited to see everything that happens this year. Awesome. Thank you so much. And one small correction in that interview with Sarah Hanna, I believe I said that the um, trustee from the New York Power Authority who is resigning was a county commissioner. He's actually a county executive from Oneida County, so just small correction there. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. You just heard from Socialist Assembly member Sarah Hanestresta, and coming up soon, we have Desiree and Caitlin on live to give us an update on the migrants who were forced to camp outside the Watson Hotel earlier this month and much more. But first, if you're a regular listener of WBAI, uh, you know we can only stay on the air because of, gener of the generous support of our listeners like you. Um, I think as Reggie alluded to, you know, and if you are a regular listener of WBAI, you know that it is very hard to bring this kind of content um, and not take any kind of corporate donations. It's, you know, it's a scrappy business uh, running a listener-sponsored station, um, but we do it because it's what is allows us um, to really bring you real content that is not influenced by corporations and big powerful interests. And, you know, we know times are very tough for everybody right now, but if you have absolutely anything that you can give to WBAI, so shows like Revolutions Per Minute can stay on the air, um, please chip in what you can. Um, to give to the station, please call 212-209-2950. Again, that number is 212-209-2950, or you can go to WBAI.org. You know, as you heard in that interview with Sarah Hanna, um, here on RPM, we talked to Sarah Hanna when she was a candidate. You know, we gave her a chance to explain her vision for New York. Um, then we had some of the organizers that helped get her elected on later to explain how they won that campaign. You know, we're not interested in just hearing sound bites from politicians. Um, we want to hear their vision and we want to hear what their organizing plan is for the working class. Um, you know, here on RPM, we've been covering public power and the Build Public Renewables Act for years now. You know, we've really, really gone in depth on this issue. 
and talking about how it will impact working class New Yorkers like you. Um, and we do that because, you know, we're not getting any money, any sponsorship from the Con Eds of the world, the national grids of the world. You know, we're only able to hold these kind of powerful people accountable because of your support. So if there's anything that you can give, um, please do. Again, you can go to WBAI.org to do that or give us a call at 212-209-2950. Again, that number is 212-209-2950. And I just also want to remind you all that in about 15 minutes, um, we're going to be opening up the phone lines. We are not only listener-sponsored, we are interested in hearing from our listeners. So we hope you will give us a call. Um, but first, we're going to turn to Caitlin and Desiree. Caitlin and Desiree, so glad to, to have you on tonight. Thanks for having us, Lee. Hello. So I kind of just wanted to start out, um, you know, if our regular listeners have definitely heard a lot from you, Desiree, and have heard Caitlin on once before. Um, but can you start off by telling us a bit about the mutual aid work that you've been doing with migrants here in New York City? Yeah, so I'll go first. My name is Desiree Joy Frias. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a mutual aid organizer, actually from the South Bronx, so native of the South Bronx. Um, I organize mostly right now with South Bronx Mutual Aid um, and my comrades uptown, um, though right now I am actually organizing out of Red Hook Mutual Aid at 147 Pioneer Street um, in Red Hook, Brooklyn, a block from the detention camp that's being run out of the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal. Um, for me, mutual aid organizing is the way I was raised. Um, as a Latina, I was raised in community. And my, the only reason my single mom was able to do everything she did, have a career, um, raise her children, um, is because of mutual aid, of, of community care. Um, so for me, uh, my mutual aid is always open to everyone. We serve everybody. And it's really with the um, intention of fostering a space where everyone can give and everyone can take. Um, and ensuring that it's done from a position of decolonization, of abolition, of community care, and of centering the actual voice of the people that are in need, that are marginalized, and hearing directly from them what it is they need, not deciding for them what they need. And uh, Caitlin, I think you've had a similar experience in your mutual aid organizing. Yes, I would really echo that. And as a white person who has long-term Irish Bronx roots, but has moved to the city as a choice. Um, there's nothing wrong with having things and giving them to people that you think need them. However, that is not mutual aid. And mutual aid is a dynamic and ongoing relationship exchange, not exchange, an ongoing and dynamic relationship where, yeah, like Desiree said, everyone in the room is offering and getting something but not in like a capitalist exchange way and potentially you can't tell what that is until after yeah and i think that's really an important distinction that caitlin's pointing out is that um you know when you walk into a space you really there should never be a group of volunteers and a group of receivers it really um, should yeah it really should be a space where everyone is empowered to do any task that calls them, um, whether it's cleaning the bathrooms, cooking the food, hanging up the clothes, um, you know, without really having a hierarchical model where someone is in charge at the top 
and everyone else is underneath because I think we've seen time and time again throughout capitalism that those styles of organizations often fall and um, often fall very hard, whether they're businesses, whether they're churches, whether they're nonprofits. Um, I think that model of having someone at the top and everyone below them um, just kind of perpetuates this culture of oppression. And I think horizontal organizing is, is the strongest path forward for us. Well, we're really honored to have you on RPM once again and to share all this amazing knowledge, you know, with our listeners. Um, and in one instance where mutual aid, you know, was really on the forefront of responding to and meeting people's needs is when earlier this month, there were migrants that were camped outside the Watson Hotel in Manhattan um, after they were forced to move from the hotel. Uh, you know, they were trying to be forced into an inhumane facility in Red Hook. Um, eventually, police cleared that encampment a few days later. Can you give us an update on what happened to those folks who were camped? camping outside of the Watson Hotel? Yeah, so um, what's really hard as an organizer in this work um, is is I, I can't tell you what happened to every single one of them. Some people chose to go on to Canada, the United States government, um, through their contractors at DocuGo, which run most of the shelters here in New York City. There's about 45 shelters um, across the city that are holding migrants right now. They're out of hotels. They're out of um, the cruise terminal. Um, they're being offered tickets anywhere, um, in the, in the country, as well as to Plattsburgh, New York, to cross the Roxbury street and be detained by Canadian authorities. Um, so a lot of migrants did felt after this experience that America was no longer a safe space for them and asked to be bused to Plattsburgh. Um, then they crossed over to Canada and I did receive word last week through WhatsApp that some of those people were deported to Matamoras, Mexico. So um, some of the members of the Watson um, went to 30th Street Men's Shelter and to other DHS shelters. Some of the people that were outside the Watson um, did get on the buses um, to the Red Hook Cruise Terminal, which is freezing inside. There has already been um, a confirmed loss of life, suicide. Um, and there has also been an additional attempt this week. So. Um, it's very clear. It's very clear that um, there's a lot of, of pain in the space, and it is not a safe space for a lot of people. Um, so I, I worry. I worry all the time about the people that I've met along my my journey of mutual aid. Um, but I, I'll never know where many of them ended up. And yeah. And so um, is what happened at the Watson Hotel? Is that typical of what migrants are facing when they arrive here? And, you know, can you talk about like, what are some of the biggest challenges that they are facing right now? And, you know, how is mutual aid kind of uh, filling that gap um, with a lack of social services from New York City? I can actually speak less to what's typical of migrants coming here, but what has happened is completely typical of the city's response to quote unquote like emergent crises within the housing structures that they have already set up. So starting much earlier, but in my experience, personal experience, starting with de Blasio's takeover of hotels for COVID shelters, and then their subsequent treatment of people within and moving them around. It's migrants coming here right now are, 
it is typical because migrants are coming here to the illusion and advertised sanctuary state in a sanctuary country and are being met with, I mean, Adams is correct that they're meeting the same crisis that New York City has already been facing, but it is a New York City government invented and perpetuated Mm. and purposefully maintained for profit for decades crisis. There is no shortage of space in this city. There is no shortage of resources. We are meeting, there is a militant and ongoing attempt in every sector and in every corner of the city to repress and crack down on any expression of community care or joy to the point that the paranoia that people who have resources and have space experience around the potential for being sued, raided, killed, overtakes any kind of human connection. <laughs> yeah. So what migrants are facing when they enter the city is, again, and as we've all been dealing with and working within the actual reality of the city in which we live without its artifice. And they're just meeting face to face. The fact that there is no, yeah. (laughs) No. And and I mean, so this, yeah, this, this lack of, of, of intentional lack of infrastructure is systemic, but for me, um, I really dispute that it's a crisis that it's a migrant crisis. These are people arriving to New York City as people have arrived to New York City since 1642. It's how we have, honestly, bring back Ellis Island. I mean, like, (laughs) bring back the the system of before because the way we're doing it now is even worse somehow. Somehow this is worse than changing people's names at Ellis Island. Somehow this is worse than all the transmission of communicable diseases because we're still doing that in our shelter systems. They're still not clean enough. People are getting diseases in the shelters that have been eradicated in other parts of the world. Um, People are really living in conditions that are not livable and it is not due to lack of funding. We have this biggest city budget in the entire country and it is, it is, it's due to the intentional choices of people in government, of people at nonprofits and at people that perpetuate the systems of capitalism. Again. Yeah. I just kind of, just really have to re-highlight that it is not there's there is no crisis it is all completely fabricated it's our daily lives it's and people buy into it if anything if anything i would say and hope that this situation will disrupt that to a degree that people won't be able to live with anymore but we'll see i'm naive yeah, well, thank you so much for that that framing, because, you know, as I was kind of doing some research for this show, it was very interesting, you know, which outlets frame this as, you know, a migrant crisis. You know, obviously, right-wing um, outlets like the New York Post are really drumming up that that idea that there, there's a crisis, you know, where, where other people talk about an influx of, of migrants. And it's, you know, pretty clear where... Um, Mayor Adams, you know, falls um, within that narrative. And he is actually, you know, 
using this language around a crisis um, to justify his austerity budget. You know, as I mentioned earlier in the show, um, he's proposing major cuts to things like public schools, to libraries, other, you know, social services. Um, can you re- what's your reaction to to the mayor, you know, blaming this on on migrants coming into into our city? Well, it's also not it's not just right wing media, it's liberal media and publications like the New York Times and other publications that have for years for this particular years and decades reported on these things as single human interest stories. Yeah, a flood, a crisis, the caravan, and every single time. And so that it's really easy to blame the right wing for doing, but it's actually the liberal media and especially in New York City that I think is more responsible for that. Yeah, and and that's why I'm so thankful for WBI to platform. The, the reality of, of the situation that people are, are living through, are fighting to survive every day in, because it is life or death. Um, that is the, the level of trauma, the level of injury that these people have faced in their journey here in the Darien Gap, physical injuries, emotional injuries, spiritual injuries. They are at their most vulnerable by the time they've gotten here after four months of traveling. And then the city just kicks sand in their face just to be cruel. And the other thing is, if you want to talk about a flood of migrants, let's talk about white flight during COVID. That's what... Let's talk about the people who left and will never come back and the 40,000 empty apartments in New York City. That's right. And there's no one, no one expects Eric Adams or the New York City government to, quote unquote, do the right thing or to take care. I mean, or if anyone does, I'm sorry. <laughs> However, there are, again, 40 million people and 400 billion dollars in wealth between those of us who are here and Eric Adams and just to be frank walking around Red Hook and trying to ask the long-term white people who live here if they know what's going on here or if they would be willing to support it uh, yeah no and those I... are all made up numbers but the you know the gap that exists between those of us on the ground and the people, quote unquote, about whom this radio interview is about, and then the city government is huge, controls what New York is, and is full of wealth and resources. And I think in closing, you know, I I think for anyone who is looking to get into mutual aid work or to divest from a charity model, um, I think it's important to learn about the power of just sitting down and talking with someone first. Before you go by you know, a whole bunch of whatever you think they need to sit down and talk to them because yesterday someone came through and their bike was broken and they could not do deliveries. They could not make money because their bike was broken. We fixed it for $10. -hmm. That person now can go back to their job that was giving them their only source of income in this country because of $10. So That has been, that sums up my main organizing, organizing experience over time. It's like, yeah, the direct $10 and the listening to people ask for what they need and responding to that. Not buying things in advance that you think people need or assuming that you know what they need. Yeah. And it's generally something, yeah, anyway. As silly as a phone, not as silly, but yeah, it's a phone or a mode of transportation that. Yeah, excellent. Opens up. 
the world to people. Yeah. Yeah. Those are excellent points. And I would really love to hear what our listeners um, think about this. Um, so if you want to call in, the number is 212-209-2877. Um, and as I always kind of encourage, you know, I know sometimes these issues, especially because of, you know, the rhetoric that's been used to, to dehumanize these people, um, it can be a little bit of a heated debate, but, you know, really think about um, what Desiree and Caitlin have been talking about, you know, the inhumane conditions people are faced with. And just keep that in mind when you when you call in, um, you know, please know that we are all here to to work for a better future. Um, so if you have thoughts about this, if you have thoughts, more thoughts about the New York City budget or the New York State budget, the number um, is 212-209-2877. And while we're waiting for our listeners, oh, we already have one on the line. Um, listener, you are live on WBAI. What is your question or comment? Oh, sorry. My, my baby might start crying. Um, I, I really appreciate uh, the work that y'all do. I um, was watching it from afar. But um, shout out, first of all, to um, the Department of Immigrant Affairs official Twitter um, for painting the people who are helping with the mutual aid as outside agitators, um, which was a really um, incredible uh, turn. Um, they were platforming fascist journalists and making it seem as if people um, had nefarious reasons for helping out um, people who might not want to go to a cruise to, you know, to, to Red Hook and, and um, freeze. Um, I guess my question is whether or not um, Pioneer Works, which is an art space um, on Pioneer Street, has been involved. Um, they should be. Um, they're part of like making value in that neighborhood um, in various ways. I think they have a responsibility. Um, and maybe y'all know more about this, but the cruise turn, you know, the cruise ships now, the bigger ones, they're going to come there. I, I remember hearing something about how. Yeah, in two weeks, the Marie, the Queen Mary. Yeah, if, if somebody, I, I sort of didn't get too far into the story, but if, if the city essentially had done the build out to make it so that the grid could just be plugged into by the ships, they wouldn't have to run their diesel. So that connects to the, the local neighborhoods, the, the air quality now of whatever migrants that are there. Um, so just kind of was asking if you knew any more about that story. It seems to be connected. Um, sorry to ramble, but um, thanks again for what you do. And, and screw Department of Immigrant Affairs, Mayor Cop Clown Adams. Um, and yeah, thanks. Yeah, everything you, it's not rambling because 100% of what you said is correct and relevant. Um, and I hope you have a lovely evening with your baby, comrade. And I think Caitlin wants to speak about Pioneer Works, which we're next door yeah. to. And briefly, as an, yeah, I've been, I, before the squat that I live in was this particular squat, it was a venue and was involved in the sanctuary movement to try to get art spaces, particularly to get on board with the kind of sanctuary that church spaces were starting to do in the mid 2010s or whatever. Pioneer works over it. Yeah, there's been a few people who have called on them. They so far have been completely silent. They are sitting directly between the terminal where people are being detained and the one mutual aid space in the entire neighborhood, which is under duress and probably shutting down. 
and they have so much space and so many resources and have long-term made their money off of being a quote-unquote community art space and profiting off of the work of queer, immigrant, migrant, BIPOC people, etc., 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 ad infinitum, and yeah, Pioneer Works really invite you to speak up and step in. Come by tomorrow from 10 to 8, 147 Pioneer. Um, We went through 10 pizzas tonight. (laughs) Um, We plan to serve more hot food tomorrow because the food that's being served uh, at the terminal is is inadequate. People have lost a lot of weight. And it's not rambling. The things truly are connected. It's a much longer conversation, but the way that cultural capital works in New York City and the sweeping, quote unquote, of people off the streets for decades, but especially over the past couple of years and what that refers to and what it means for the future is incredibly important and a huge part of this conversation. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for calling in and babies are always welcome here on Revolutions Per Minute. Let's go to our next caller. Caller, you are live on the radio on WBAI. What is your question or comment? Yeah, I just want to say one thing briefly. You know, I, I love the immigrants too, and I want them to come here. The, the economy now is so different than it was when immigrants were coming here through Ellis Island at the, the turn of the 20th century. Back then, there was so many factories, there was garment work. Those people were getting a toehold. I mean, when when you don't have ten dollars to fix a bike, it says something about our economy that's just not. It's not what it was. It's this is not the land of dreams anymore. And, you know, e-bike, e-bike deliveries are great. E-bike commerce is great, but that's literally all there is. That's what the, 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 the people at the, who just get here and are on the lowest rungs of the economic ladder, that's all they have access to. That's all they do in the society now because there's no other work. So what are your thoughts as socialists about creating more work opportunities for new Americans? Yeah, so, um, I mean... You know, as an organizer, I think that work is just one piece of the puzzle. And I think that a lot of the people that are they're they're not in physical, they want to work. They desperately beg to work every single time they come in, every time. That's all they want. But you have to understand as well that some of these people are in such bad physical shape. They need to be seen by a doctor. They need to be they, they, they have illnesses that they picked up in the jungle that haven't been treated. They have open wounds. These are things that are not being cared for by the city in any capacity. Um, There is a man with a broken arm that's been broken for over two years. And he was already in the shelter for the past seven months. And no one has done anything to have him see a specialist for a completely detached humerus, totally split in half. Um, So, sure, we have to work to survive capitalism, right? But at the same time, I believe that there's a better future, that there's a better way that we don't we shouldn't have to work until we die or we shouldn't have to work to survive we should be able to survive and bet, better than that thrive in community and so that people who are need to heal can heal and rest and people who want to work can work Amen to that. And as an eco-socialist, I will add that there are tens of thousands of jobs needed to build the clean, renewable future that we need to avert the climate catastrophe. Um, So that could maybe be another place. And uh, we have one more caller on the line. Caller, uh, what is your question or comment? Hello, I'm Tom from the Bronx. I'd just like to say for all the new arrivals that have come to this city, The federal government should be responsible for everybody 
and they'll have to take areas and build a lot of prefab buildings to house a lot of these people that have come up. Not to not do it is irresponsible. They uh, and that's that's what they should do. They should be helping. Instead, the federal government wants to do hide, and that's terrible. They'll leave it to the city budget. The city budget is is really uh, strained as as it is now, and it never gets any better. So the the areas that they they build these places should be federal reserve uh, be called federal reserve areas. That would be a positive situation to handle this. And then for they print money in Washington D.C. The money is good as long as you're pumping it in for basic needs. If they send money home to uh, people. And they're going to say, well, look, I'm going to watch uh, reruns of Gilligan's Island and and, and the Flintstones, then we're, we're sunk. But if they they take the money and they put it in. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. I want to give Desiree and Caitlin a quick chance to reply to that. And also, if you could just let us know how people can stay involved in this work and that you're all doing. Yeah, so... Um, we don't need to build any more housing. There is actually 40,000 available units. What we need is likely a vacancy tax so that landlords don't just sit on um, empty units at infinitum um, and, and really put that housing stock into people's hands at an affordable rate, which right now the rates in New York City are not affordable. Which works um, in other developed countries. Still yep. terrible, but developed countries. Um, but just in closing, if people want to connect with us, you can actually come to Red Hook Mutual Aid tomorrow, 147 Pioneer mm. Street. 10 to 8 o'clock, a free store, everything free, food, community. And uh, if you want to connect with South Bronx Mutual Aid, you can go to sbxma.com. That's sbxma.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter. Caitlin, any links you want to drop before we disconnect? All right. Well, thank you so much, Lee, yeah, for having Yeah, thank you us. so much for being on and all the incredible mutual aid work um, that you're doing. You've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com, and you can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Have a great night, New York City. I'm Lisa Shi. Have a good one.